0: Alright, and welcome to Redeemed Humanity, the section that probably most of you have been waiting for where I actually go to those six complementarian proof texts and walk through them expositionally like we just talked about in the last episode, and that that is how I'm going to walk through them is in the same steps that I laid out. But one thing that I, as I've been thinking through this, that I think has been really helpful for me is in that last section where we're talking about homiletics or how we apply theology, how we apply the gospel, what the implications for that are for us. That's homiletics. And the more I've been thinking about it, the more I think it's important for us to realize that biblical authors do homiletics as well. In other words, a lot of what Paul is writing to the churches is this is how we should live out of the gospel and we've already decided and talked about how homiletics are inherently contextual because they are how people at a given time a certain church should respond and live in their context how they should be prophetic because of the gospel in their context. And that's why when you read Paul's letters, the theology remains the same throughout, but his applications are specific and different based on which letter you're reading. So in this section, I'm going to be working through that kind of expositional preaching process for the six major complementarian proof texts to show that when we properly interpret it and know that there's homiletics going on, they are actually going to be consistent theologically with a redeemed humanity viewpoint of the sexes. Remember that this isn't an attack. This whole thing has not been an attack. And believers who are they're just humbly seeking to be obedient to the lord but they land in a different place that's that's okay i'm not trying to um come down on you what i'm trying to do is help open up the scriptures to see what they are actually saying rather than imposing our own frameworks onto this so i really want to encourage you to grab a bible as we go through this Every time we get to a new passage, take a pause, actually read it for yourself, um, rather than just kind of accepting what I'm gonna say unchecked. So here's where we're gonna start, 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. So, the first thing we need to do is exegesis of 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. through 15. And in order to start, we need to go back to the top of the letter to get some of that literary context. In chapter 1, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who is his son in the faith, as he calls it. And he's doing it to instruct certain people in the church at Ephesus on proper teachings because they were teaching what he calls in verse three, strange things from the law. In those strange teachings, they were leading to a mission derailment in the church, and he talks about that in verse six. Rather than Correctly interpreting the law as a revealing of sin nature for us as humans and then pointing to the coming saving grace of Jesus, which is the mission that the church is to embody is to reveal the sin nature of humans and point to the saving grace of Jesus. So in chapter 1, Paul is setting Timothy up by describing the conflict that's going on in the Ephesian church that he's currently looking over. And in chapter 2, he begins outlining a plan that he has for Timothy to combat these false teachers. He begins by urging Timothy to pray for all people, and specifically those in authority, so that peace might arise in Rome and for the church. This is the first instruction, and it gives us a little insight into some of the historical context of the time in in which Paul's writing 1 Timothy. It's clear that there's some dissension and some conflict between the church and the Roman authorities. And, And it's logical that some of those who give their allegiance to King Jesus, they would begin to see his kingdom as a direct conflict with the emperors. And so, There's going to be some resulting conflict when these two kingdoms kind of collide. But Paul, he's being clear. The church is not to intentionally stir up conflict with governing authorities, but rather pray for peace and a peace that leads to quiet, tranquil, and godly lives. He says that in chapter 2, verse 2. After all, Paul concludes, it's Jesus' heart to save all people and that they would come to know the truth about God. That's Jesus' heart because he is the God and the mediator of all people, not just some. That is the message of the good news to be proclaimed to everyone. When he brings this up in chapter 2, 5 through 7, he's responding to some genealogical speculations that we saw in chapter 1, where people were probably speculating about how their lineage is actually what saves them, rather than Jesus alone. So, if the church in Ephesus is not to be speculating, or not to be creating dissensions, what are they to do? Well, Paul goes on and he instructs the men of the church to pray rather than to angrily dispute one another. Remember, back in chapter 1, we saw that these false teachers were using the Torah to speculate about just nonsense things. And when that happened, these sharp arguments were occurring. So, what was the solution to these nonsense heated debates? Paul thinks that it's going to the Lord in prayer. He's encouraging Men to seek the Lord for the truth when interpreting the Torah. And then Paul addresses some women in the church who have made it their end to just show themselves off with high end fashion. That's in chapter 2, verse 9. And this isn't a speculation. We got to remember that Paul is writing to an actual church body. So he's going to be addressing the things that he sees in that church at the time. That doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to apply from these texts. But right now, we're simply just doing the context work that it takes to answer the question, hey, what did this letter mean for the church at the time? So he responds by saying, if you want to adorn yourselves beautifully, do it with godly living. That's real beauty. Paul then continues addressing women in the Ephesian church by saying that they should receive right instruction with quiet submission. That's verse 11 of chapter 2. Continuing the exegetical process and using the text to discern the historical context, what we can see is that some women in Ephesus were being outspokenly wrong about Christian teaching. Paul is telling Timothy to ask these women to create a proper and undistracted learning space for themselves. What we need to know is that both in Jewish and Roman contexts, women were not prominently educated. Because education was a culturally male-oriented pathway. So Paul is saying something like this. In the church of Jesus, yes, women are seen as equal value to men. We can see Paul's heart in that in Galatians 3. And so they should be equally educated. So it's good that you are now learning about the law and the Messiah, but right now you don't have the systemic educational background required to properly interpret it. So don't just jump to conclusions and start trying to be teachers in the church when you don't fully actually know what you're teaching yet. He says that in chapter 2 verse 12. And we know that this is a right interpretation for two reasons. First, the word that Paul uses in verse 12 for I do not allow, it's never used in a permanent sense in the Greek lexicon. In other words, What he is not saying is, I never allow women to teach, but instead, a more helpful translation would maybe be, in the moment of my writing, I don't allow. So we got to remember that everything that he's writing is in the moment of my writing, because... He's writing it for specific people. He was not really considering in this moment that his letters are going to be canonized into scripture for later generations with totally different cultural backgrounds to read. And that's not a bad thing, but it is precisely the reason that we have to do this context work when we're interpreting Paul's letters. This is a better understanding of Paul's impermanent direction and it perfectly fits the context of the Ephesian church. And and honestly, it would fit the context of any first century church because women everywhere were not given equality when it came to education until the church came along. They were the first ones to champion equal education for women. And so it would be wise for Paul to ban women from teaching just for a time until they've actually submitted to accept the full right teaching and then could lead properly. The same wisdom is used later on in 1 Timothy 3 when he warns that overseers must not be new converts lest they become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. So another way of saying that is, lest in their arrogance they start to be deceived into false teaching they should not be new converts paul differentiates women in general and new converts because they're actually just two totally separate issues paul when he was a new convert he was able to transfer his torah education to see jesus clearly. But he took at least three years to fully process that messianic lordship as he talked about in Galatians 1. But he had been trained up in the Torah and in Greek education since childhood. So though there was a growth period, he had only to just reorient his Jewish categories of messiahship to Jesus' revelation of them. This would be the same reorientation that all new converts would have to go through. However, for women of the first century, there was a way bigger period of education required because they would need to learn to read, understand Greek logic, and be educated in the Torah. So we can see that Paul's intention is not, I never permit women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but right now, I do not permit it, which makes sense of his direction then for them to find a quiet and undistracted place to learn. The second bit of evidence we have that declares this interpretation to be true is Paul's reference to Adam and Eve. When we set it within the interpretation of Genesis that we covered earlier, it's the only one that makes sense within this context of a temporary ban of teaching. Whenever I've pressed a complementarian about verses 14 and 15, a certain amount of, I'll call it, honest troubling enters the conversation. And I'm fortunate, but I've never heard a pastor confidently or happily admit that women are more prone to deceit than men or that they'll be saved through childbearing, which one would actually have to logically argue if the reference to Adam and Eve is there to support a permanent ban of women in teaching or authority roles. But no, they're they're never ready to admit that women are more prone to deceit because they know from experience that that's just not true. Nor are they ready to proclaim that women are saved through childbearing because they know the great harm that that kind of narrative has caused for women in the church, and they're not ready to perpetuate it. So what does Paul mean, and why is he bringing up Genesis here? And this actually brings us to our biblical context. As we've covered already, Paul is living in a tradition that's noted Eve's error when reciting God's command to the serpent. Paul is recounting that story. Adam came first and was to receive the command from God. Eve then received it secondarily, secondhand, in that it was passed from Adam to her. But Eve did not know the command as sufficiently as she should have, and she misquoted it to the serpent, and because of that, fell into deceit. When she touched the fruit, she didn't die. So she mistrusted the rest of the command, the parts that God actually did say. She sinned against God and gave the fruit to Adam who was with her. So her lack of knowledge, it led not only to her sin, but to the sin of another. And so sin was multiplied. And from this, we can see the extreme danger in one without sufficient or one with misguided knowledge wielding the authority to teach. It leads to this cascading sin. And this is the danger that Paul sees and is using strong language to prevent it from happening again in the early church. Paul is helping ensure that the church in Ephesus, that they don't fall into that error, but rather that the women in the church would receive the authority with entire submissiveness, not just a partial understanding that would lead to misguided interpretation. Paul's not advocating for a permanent submission of women to men, but a temporary one and only to the extent that it regards proper teaching. This kind of submission would mirror the intended obedience of Adam to correctly pass on God's command and the obedience of Eve to submit and fully receive God's word from him through the man. So then we have to continue this line of thought into verse 15 when we interpret it. In doing so, I see two possible interpretations. The first is, what we're not talking about is women in general that will be saved through childbearing, but Paul is talking about a specific woman, this woman of the Bible, a thread line that we covered in Genesis, and it goes through John. Remember, that woman, Eve, that she is going to be saved when she fully waits for the woman, Mary, who bears the child, and Jesus then breaks her curse. Paul is encouraging women to have that same faith as Eve, that their ultimate redemption will come because God is faithful, just as he's proved in Christ. The second possible interpretation is that Paul is now moving away from talking about Eve and using her as an analogy for women in Ephesus. What's going to rescue women from the same fate as Eve? Well, in Paul's context, he could be contending that, for a time, women should redirect their aspirations for leadership to the place that they already have it, focusing on raising their children in faith, love, and holiness. And now again, I have to stress this, because this is not permanent Paul is not saying a woman's worth is only found in raising children or that she can only lead there now. He's talking in his context. So what he's saying is your aspirations to lead, they're good, but you're not ready to lead in the church's teaching yet. But you know who you are ready to lead? Your family. We know that it's not Paul's intention to constrain women to being the homemaker wife because we see him commend many women for leading the church in other places like Phoebe and Junia in Romans 16. Interpreting this section with a redeemed humanity viewpoint is validated as correct because it alone makes the transition into chapter 3 more sensible. Women are not yet ready to take the mantle of leadership in the church of Ephesus, and they need more time to be trained up properly. And their time, it's going to come like God promised, so they should wait faithfully as Eve did. But If they do aspire to leadership, they can do so even today by leading their family first and foremost. Now, if a man aspires to leadership, that's a good thing. But even if they have been trained up in the faith, there are other leadership parameters as well. And that moves us into chapter 3. So now we have this context, and it's setting us up for a right interpretation. And the structure of the passage also is revealing itself. It's a two-part structure that leads logically from chapter 2 into chapter 3. The first part is addressing the men of Ephesus and encouraging them to pray for peace rather than to cause dissension or conflict. And the second part of chapter 2 is addressing the women and encouraging them to live godly lives, to be good and humble learners, and to lead their families in faith. So now that we've done the exegetical work, let's answer the question, what is Paul's aim in this section? I think that Paul's message to Timothy to pass on to the Ephesian church is really clear. It's this, men, pray and be peaceable because Jesus' kingdom is one of peace and His saving grace is for all people. So treat them that way. Women, Rather than using your status of equality in Christ for your own adornment or your own ambition, walk humbly before the church and for right now, focus on leading where you are, but lead in godliness. of a right interpretation of scripture is that it always directs the focus to the good news about Jesus Christ. And here we see that truth is shining vibrantly now that the passage has been properly exegeted. That's actually a good litmus test for right interpretation. If it doesn't exalt and shine the light on Jesus, it's a poor interpretation of the scripture. Here, though, now that we have examined the author's aim based on the context, we see two truths about the gospel just glowing beautifully. Paul's first point in application of the gospel is as it's revealed in Luke 2.14, namely that Jesus's kingdom is here and it brings peace and salvation for all people. And that's where he addresses the men. Paul's second point is an example of how we can apply Jesus' incarnation and the way it moves us to live, which he iterates wonderfully in Philippians 2, 5-7. through And that's that Jesus uses his authority not for selfish ambition, but for humble and truly loving servanthood. As his body then, and as being clothed with Christ we should also live in that humble, not selfish way. And that's where he's applying that to the women. So that's how you can preach the gospel of Jesus from 1 Timothy 2. And when you do, it bears implications that are so much more profound than men should pray and women should be godly homemakers because it's actually rooted in and directed toward the truths of the gospel. So finally, we move from the gospel to the implications of the gospel, that homiletics and application section. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because this is where a local pastor's work really needs to take over. Because there's no single application that's right for every single church. And that's why we have local pastors and we encourage them to do the exegetical work for themselves because only they can really see how the gospel shines through these passages into their specific church's context. But if I were preaching this text, I would follow the structure that's already been established and preach kind of a two-point sermon that would sound something like this. First, I would iterate Paul's aim for the men of the Ephesian church to pray for peace and then explain that this prayer for peace, it's an application that blossoms out of the gospel of Jesus by turning to Luke 2. There, I would preach the gospel that Jesus's kingdom is here and it is for the salvation of the world. And then I would encourage my congregation to give their allegiance to Jesus and for those who have done so to lay down the arms that they're wielding for culture warring and take up praying for the peace and saving grace of Jesus to come to our community with unity. Second, I would iterate Paul's aim for the women of the Ephesian church and then direct us to the truth that is in Philippians 2 and I would begin to preach the good news of the humble glory of Jesus' incarnation. I would close by encouraging my congregation that we as the church, we do have great authority and it's given to us to use because of our adoption as sons, but that we must only use that authority like Jesus did to humbly love and serve others and direct them through that to the glory of God. In this sermon outline, we see the incredibly practical and beautiful gospel of Jesus at work in the church. And that's because it's a sermon built on proper exegesis of the text, which when applied, it shines a beautiful light on Jesus and it brings a blessing to everyone and a curse to none. All right, man, First Timothy, there's so much good stuff in there when we see how the gospel is really working in this passage. I hope that you are encouraged and I hope that you have spent time opening your word and reading and discerning for yourself and that you'll take all this with you in prayer And really consider it before God. What are the applications? How can we pray for Jesus' saving grace to come into our communities? And how can we walk humbly in self-giving love before others? Man, thanks so much for listening. In the next episode, we're going to continue on to 1 Corinthians 14. So thanks so much for your time, y'all.